Hey, thank you very much. You can take a seat. Nice to have you here this morning. Okay. You guys ready? Okay. How are you today? Don't lie to me. But don't answer out loud either. Seriously. Seriously, how are you today? Good? Okay. Okay. How are you really? Okay. I ask that question for a very simple reason. The way you answer that question in very many ways determines whether your relationship with God is vibrant or not. Because the areas that we struggle the most are the areas where we question God the most. It's the areas where we struggle with trust. It's the areas where we say, maybe what I've come to know about God isn't necessarily true. I've heard, I've heard about God being a God of caring, a God of love, a God of being, being faithful, and yet my experience right now doesn't necessarily reflect that. And yet, this is what, this is, you know, the trajectory of faith, isn't it? This is, this is what bridges those moments that we have in our lives where we say, you know, this, this experience can't just be all there is I know and understand about God, even though Scripture tells us so much more that our experience doesn't always reflect. Now, I heard something very, you know, we just came through a series about, you know, walk this way, and we talked about these, these seven categories, these seven big labels about what it means to walk with Jesus. And, you know, we put these categories and we can sort of try to measure ourselves how well our walk with Jesus is and the culture that we live and work in uh, by these kind of labels that we put on it. And I heard something really interesting. Um, I, I heard a comment saying that um, Jesus did ministry at three miles an hour. Now I said, well, what do you mean by that? They say, well, you know, Jesus walked everywhere. Okay? So with his disciples, you know, ministry happened because that's the speed that the average person walks at is the speed of three miles per hour. So when Jesus has his disciples, you know, there isn't all the frenetic activity that we have in our culture and in our world today. And that, you know, it's... it's them asking questions, them living with Jesus and seeing the experience firsthand and, and, and him, you know, infusing these lessons into, into their lives. And, and I thought to myself, man, I do ministry at 100 miles an hour. And sometimes I feel that I have to go faster. And for many of you, when it comes to your relationship with God, life is happening and you're kind of going, and, and, and you know, and you move past the experience or you move past the relational component and you go, why isn't I don't have a deeper relationship with God? And the fact of the matter is, is you're going at 100 miles an hour where Jesus went and did ministry at three miles per hour. You know, it reminded me of, you know, when, when I'm walking with my grandson. And for those of you that have that experience, or walking with the young kids, right? You, 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 come on, let's get going. Like, what's taking so long, you know, just to get the shoes and that on. And, you know, like, guys, and boy, talk to me, come on. You've had that experience, right? And it's like an hour later, you're just getting out the door and you're going, really? 
Is there something to be said that that's the moment in which the, the, the most important elements of life get realized? Right? And you know, maybe, maybe it's getting older. I don't know. But I'm, I'm certainly coming to the place that I'm saying, you know, I think we need to start doing ministry at three miles an hour. Because that's where the relationship, the, the deepening of our spiritual walk with Jesus really happens is at this three miles per hour. And, you know, for, for some of you, that, that's really bothersome because you're living, you know, you've got, you know, it feels like, okay, you've got three kids at home, but it feels like 30, <laughs> Right? Okay, because how could three little, you know, or four little kids, you know, you've, you've been in those moments, right? And it's like, what's he talking about three miles an hour, right? I'd, I'd be happy if we got it down to 95 miles an hour, let alone, I'd be happy if I saw three hours of sleep. I'd be happy if, you know, right? And, 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 and you know, your relationship right now with God isn't, isn't where you want it to be because life is happening, Life is going on. And if somebody was to really challenge you about your relationship with Jesus, you're probably going to say, uh, it's kind of on the back burner right now because there's all these life things going on. There's all these life priorities going on. And as much as we try to get engaged, and it's trying, there's just a reality here that is happening. And, you know, my, my question often is, what would it take in your life that would start you down a path to start doubting God and start doubting the fact that he truly does love you? What, what would happen? What would need to happen in your life? Or what would begin to happen in your life for you to start saying, you know, I'm not sure I can trust God anymore. And the way you answer that is often the degree in which your faith needs to be strengthened or your faith needs to be challenged, okay? Now, we're going to, I'm, I'm going to, you know, this is kind of an epilogue to this whole series that we've done about Walk This Way. And I, I, I got challenged, you know, one of the things, one of the dangers, okay, let me just say it this way. One of the dangers about teaching on discipleship is the fact that all of us admit that we're human, and then we look at Jesus, who is the perfect person, and we, and we give you this model, and we say, you know, be like Jesus. And you go, I can't even be like myself. <sighs> right? I'm, I'm my worst enemy, or I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with just, you know, the very best of me doesn't always show up every morning. Okay, right? So, you know, we kind of put this level out and we kind of put this, uh, you know, for many people, it's kind of like this unrealistic expectation and we talk about loving beyond capacity. We talk about, you know, not having these labels and, and not being judgmental and all those things. And you kind of say to yourself, I got this human side of me. But the reality is, the reality is, when we talk about walking like Jesus, we're not talking about your ability to better yourself. What we're talking about is an empowerment by the Spirit of God to have a capacity beyond your own capacity to live as Jesus intends us to live. Let me ask you something. Are you, are you in the span of time that you've been a Christian, a more forgiving? 
Is it easier for you to be able to look at somebody else and say, you know, I probably just don't understand what's going on in their life. Or I just, you know, the, the, the more you're able to do that, you know, and we talk about when it comes to discipleship, we talk about Bible reading, prayer, and all this kind of stuff. At the heart of it, what Jesus really wants to see in us is the ability to be able to say, I'm a much better person since I came to faith, and I'm growing more like Jesus all the time, and I care for people more than I ever have. You know, those are the things that are really, really important, really important. Because people, people respond to, and, and again, we talked about the love of God. And, and you know, that was a really challenging message last week. I don't know, uh, for, for those of you, it was a real challenge to me personally to talk about love to that degree. And when we talked about the categories, when we talked about the different levels of love, I don't know about you, but it's like fail, 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 you know? We do our very best to demonstrate love, and yet I often wonder if the church ever experienced that kind of love. If people would walk into this building and feel ex- ex- accepted in that way, how would it transform our world? How would it transform church? How would it transform people seeing God for who he really is? You know, so I'm going to I'm, I'm going to take us to a, a, a little bit of a little bit of a story. Um, we're, computers up. We're okay, Allison. Okay, all right. Thanks. Um, I, that's why I talked for an extended period of time because I saw that we were having trouble. It's okay. It's okay. We're going to have to get some some expert back there. Other than you know, Allison, you got enough on your plate. So get somebody to fix that computer. And make sure it doesn't happen next week. Okay. Um, but I'm going to take it uh, to a story, uh, to Jeremiah 29. Many of you know this passage, and we're going to talk a little bit about this experience that the nation of Israel goes through. Now, many of us go through these experiences where we are absolutely traumatized by the events that happen in our life. And if we're traumatized by these events in our lives, we question God the most in those, in those moments of our lives. And, and here's the nation of Israel that have been sent into captivity in Babylon, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but you are a nation that has been formed as God's precious people, okay? Not because you are precious people or there's something special about you, but God chose you out of all these people and created in a nation that was formed by his love and were supposed to be people who demonstrated to the rest of the world what it was like to worship the one authentic God. And with it came all these blessings. But because they were so, um, you know, so chosen out of the rest of the world, there's all these stipulations too. Because you're responsible for reflecting the light and the glory of God, right? If you don't reflect that well, there's going to be consequences. And you know what? For many of us, with that responsibility, we don't always believe that because we're faith people, that there's going to be consequences to when we don't act like faith people. And for the nation of Israel, it really disturbed them that God used a pagan nation, the Babylonians, to come in and to sweep them away violently into a foreign land and to exile them. Now, we don't, we don't talk about exile 
very much. You know, we don't, we don't have this kind of concept of what exile is like. But if, you know, if you remember when you were young and you had peer pressure and, and you didn't get accepted by the group, that's the closest we're going to come to exile. And you know what it felt to be outsiders and not to have this, you know, you know not to be accepted by part of the group and you're in a foreign territory and you're all by yourself and you just don't know what to do. That's the closest that we probably ever come to understanding exile. But here are the Jewish people who are God's supposedly chosen people who are taken off into captivity in a violent way. And here's what we want to read to you. Uh, Jeremiah 29. And Jeremiah starts out by saying, this is what the Lord, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, um, uh, the Lord of hosts, by the way, it's Yahweh Sabaoth in Hebrew. Okay, the Lord of hosts is a military term. And, it, and you find it in Genesis 2 when the hosts of all of heaven are in array. And it, and, and it shows God as the general walking up the rows of stars and all of creation and say, yep, acceptable. Yep, this is good. Yep, this. And the prophets of the Old Testament use that terminology for the sovereign power of Yahweh, of God. Almighty, okay? The God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Listen to this. Build homes. You've just been sent into exile. Guess what? Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. (sighs) Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply and do not dwindle away. Now, I don't know about you. You've just been torn out of, out of the nation that you've grown up and the familiarity of the surroundings. And you end up in this foreign place, different land, different culture, all of that. And God says, guess what? Get used to it. How many of you, ser- you know, seriously, how many of you find you in, yourself in a situation and you feel like you're in exile and yet if somebody said, you know, you better get used to it. Don't be pining for the past. Don't be pining for the grass is greener on the other side. Don't be, you know, get used to it. This is your present reality. You know, you've heard me say many times, so this is your new normal, right? And for many of us, we come to a stage in life and we realize this is the new normal for us. We don't like it. We're not crazy about it. We wish for things to be better. We wish for things to be different. In fact, we even say stuff like, God, why are you punishing me? Why are you sending me... To, the, to, the, to a land I have no familiarity with. And God says, you know what? You're here. This is the reality. Make the best of it. How many, how many, how many opportunities, how many blessings, how many, circ- how many things do we miss? Because we're making plans, and then God disrupts those plans. And we say, because God disrupted those plans, God doesn't care. 
God isn't in this. God isn't, you know, and we have all this God language attached to it when basically God's probably telling us, you know what? Bless people where you are. Make a difference where you are. You might not like the situation. You might like the circumstances, but I probably have put you here for a reason. The circumstances exist for a reason. And if you're always looking at a human reason, it's always going to be short of what God intends for the season of your life that you find yourself in. You see, because if you're looking at what the Spirit... You know, I, 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 I heard a mentor say just recently, actually, that you can measure the effectiveness or the power of what's happening in the church by the things that are measured by the flesh or measured by the Spirit. Because the things that are measured by the flesh, okay, I know that's kind of old-fashioned terminology and, and theology, but the things that are measured by the flesh will, will disappear and dissipate, and they won't exist very long. It'll fall apart, it'll crumble. The minute, you know, um, you know if it's personality-driven, all the, that's a, the stuff that is built by the Spirit of God will last forever. They'll, they, they remain intact. That's, it's the core of what, you know, the community is all about. And there's a way of measuring that. There's a way of sensing that. There's a way of knowing that. But how many of us are missing the opportunity to be a blessing because we don't like where we are? And we're pining for something. And, and some of you, and some of you, me included, have been pining for something for so long that we have missed totally the opportunity and the potential for blessing in that situation because we've been wishing for something that just hasn't materialized yet. And there's one thing in my life that's it's like 20 years in the making. And it's like I'm suddenly realizing, you know, do you think maybe after 20 years I need to trust God? <laughs> But why? Do not dwindle away. Multiply. Look at what the next passage says. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Wow, look at this. This needs to rub you, right? Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. I'll tell you, there's a 10-part series right there. Sorry. Okay? Starting, you know, right? That's a tough passage. Here you are, you know, in a situation and circumstances you don't like. None of us, you know, uh, are, are comfortable in situations and circumstances when we feel like we're in exile. But here is God saying to the, the Jewish people, you, you know, this is the reality. This is, this is the place that you are. But guess what? Pray for their welfare because their welfare is going to become your welfare. Now, I don't know. You can, we can really point an accusing finger to the church here, can't we? If you want to be honest. We bemoan the fact that we have no voice in culture anymore. The culture, you know, culture is moving faster than we are. All this kind of stuff, right? 
Do we pray for the welfare of this country? For the benefit, because the welfare of our country means the welfare for us as well. You know, if you look at the book of Daniel, for instance, Daniel is really a remarkable human being. And the reason he's a remarkable human being is because he trusted God far more than his circumstances. If you haven't realized that, you've got to read Daniel again. Daniel is a young man who has everything going for him. He's probably from the elite of the Jewish, you know, aristocracy and is pulled out. And in fact, he's not even allowed to keep his name And in fact, in the book of Daniel, we don't even get his lineage. That is rare in the Hebrew Bible for us to not even know his parentage at all, which tells you just how much he he was extricated violently from his background and culture and, and the place. And what does Daniel do? He never once, he never once despises the people who takes him captive. If anything, he does everything in his power to bless them and to work because it was never them in the first place. It was always God first and foremost. He never said, I'm working for Nebuchadnezzar or I'm working. He said, I'm working first and foremost for the Lord. And if the Lord has us in this situation, we've been sinners. We, in fact, Daniel prays and says, Lord, I'm sorry for our people that we deserve to be in captivity because we denied you and worshiped idols. And we sinned. And we weren't faithful to the covenant that you gave us. So we are here by your, by your power and your good pleasure. And Lord, since I'm here, I'm going to bless as much as possible, the people, because I work for you. Now, I don't know about you. That's a tough place to ever go. That's not an easy place to be, because emotionally we would be so caught, so caught in what they had done to me and what they had done to us. And we miss the opportunities in the moment to bring God. Imagine, do you know that the Babylonian Empire, the, the, the Iran-Iraqi area, was the largest Christian empire right after Jesus? Do you know that? And we read in the Old Testament and in New Testament, we read about you know, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. That whole region was Christianized, was the largest Christian area right after Jesus. All those years of seeds being planted, seeds being sown, seeds, you know, and the harvest came later. But it's because of things like this. Do you know that Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah and a part of Daniel, and it said, guess what? The captivity's almost over. Okay, that's the next part I want to I get, get to. Um, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says, Jeremiah continues. The God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You see, there was another prophet. If you go to chapter 28, there was another prophet by the name of Hananiah. And he was saying, hey, Israel, don't worry. I'm a prophet, and this is only going to take a couple of years. And in a couple of years, all the treasury back from the temple, everything that you've lost, everything's going back. So don't sweat it. 
Just kind of bide your time. And Jeremiah wrote this letter to respond against Hananiah and saying, that guy's a false prophet. You guys need to listen to me. And guess what? I can prove it, you know, because the time is going to come and you're going to still be here in two years. And that's how they do it. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah says, you will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised and I will bring you home again. Imagine. You hear that and you go, we're going to be in this for a while. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to be in this for a while. What does it do to you to know that you're going to be in this for a while? How many of us, knowing that we're going to be in this for a while, give up? How many of us, knowing that we're going to be in this for a while, suddenly stop trusting God? How many of us, knowing that we're going to be in this for a while, will even start blaming God? How many of us, knowing that we're going to be in this for a while, would say, you know, God's got me here, and I'm going to be what God needs me to be in the moment. Because this isn't the end of the world. You see, how many of us think it's the end of the world? How many of us think it's the end of our usefulness to God? How many say, you know, I'm, I, you know and, and, and you've made plans, the plans get derailed, they end up somewhere else, and suddenly you think it's not important anymore. See, we give up so easily. And not only on ourselves, but we give up too easily on God. Give up too easily on God. All right, here's the last. Here's the the passage that we know so well. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. For I know the plans I have for you. Guess what? This is no surprise to me. If you think that God is surprised by your situation and circumstances, not a chance. Lord, I'm in trouble. Yeah, now what? Again, right? You know, right? Yeah, what is it this time? Okay? I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good. They are plans for good. Now listen. You've been taken into captivity. You are exiled. You feel the very worst. You feel like all this stuff has happened to you. And God says, I have plans for your good, not disaster. To give you a future and a hope. May I tell you, it's like they would have gotten that as exiles in Babylon, and that would have been a breath of fresh air. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again and to your own land. Now listen, this is is part of the second Exodus passages that we talk about um, in, in, in the Bible. 
And I'm not going to get into the, the reasons why they were sent into exile, but it's demonstrated here that God had to discipline his people. But even in the midst of the discipline, there is this hope infused into the people of God to remind them that I know the plans I have for you. I do love you. I'm not intending disaster on you. That you're going to have a future. You're going to have a hope. As people of mine, I am taking care of you. And often you're going to see yourself in the midst of the exile and you're going to say to yourself, you know what? I'm not sure God even loves me anymore. And God is reassuring his people that he has not forgotten them. He's not forsaken them. He's not... And that's what happens when you're in exile. Now, here's four things that exile threatens in our lives, okay? And, and these, are the, these are the areas that God often challenges us in. And this, these are the areas of life that, that God challenged the, the, the Jewish people as well. Number one, exile threatens our control. Okay? We want control of our lives to such a degree. And we make plans. And often we say, God, I want you to bless my plans. And then when God rearranges the plan... Instead of taking it straight A, B, C, D, and he goes E, C, A, and there's a Z in there somewhere, <laughs> right? You know, and it's a, I got to the end of this way too fast, okay? And we say, God doesn't care. At the worst moment of Israel's history comes the Lord who says, I know the plans I have for you. But we want control, don't we? You know, this, this trust thing is huge. You know this trust thing is huge. We battle with this trust thing each and every day. We're trying to figure out how to control our lives better and make it easier on God. Where we should be giving our lives over wholly to God and make it easier for us. And we get wrapped up in our plans where God's always going to have a better plan. So control is a big one. The second one is this, comfort. Comfort. I don't know where we ever got the idea that we were meant to be just comfortable as believers. Okay? Now, that's not very attractive. I know, I know, you know, go out into the masses and attract people and tell them about Jesus, and guess what? You're going to get really uncomfortable. <laughs> right? You know? Why this ever, you know, this ever-increasing idea that, that Christianity is just easy? I don't know where that ever came from. It, it, it probably came from doing life with Jesus at 100 miles an hour instead of three miles an hour. But comfort's a, comfort's a big one, right? Here's, here's the third. Let's, let's get through this, okay? Identity, okay? How many of us 
When we find ourselves in those situations, we start losing our identity as believers. We start losing our identity as Christians. We suddenly say, you know, God doesn't care for me. God doesn't love me. Things, my circumstances mean that God, you know, got something against me. And all of a sudden, our identity of who we are starts coming into doubt. And whenever your identity is threatened, your belief and your faith and your walk with God gets threatened as well. That's why identity is so important. Because you are a child of God, you have the indelible stamp of God's love on you regardless of what happens in your life. That cannot be taken away. Here are the the Israelites in, in captivity And God is saying, guess what? I'm not intending this for your disaster. But how many of us go, hoy vey? Okay? And the forehead gets flatter as time goes. And you start losing hair because you're hitting it like this. And and God goes, stop that. (laughs) Right? We've been there. We've all been there. We've all been there. And, we, and, and our identity starts getting lost. And when we, we lose our control, when we lose our comfort, when we lose our identity, we stop losing trust in God. And we think, oh, disasters come, you know? By the way, I'm not really good at disaster. If you've been in this church for any amount of time, I'm not big on doom and gloom. I really am not. The reason I trust God. When it comes to the big things in life, I trust God. Because where else would you go? Seriously, where else would you go? Identity. Here's the last one. Faith. Faith. You know, I've said this many times. And, and I'm, I'm not going to stop saying it. Faith is the biggest and most important thing in your life, not your circumstances and not the situations you find yourself in. In fact, the situation and the circumstances you find yourself in are often a test by God to see if your faith is viable. And for so many people, they use circumstances and situation to walk away from God or see it as, as a means to not embrace God. And they're kind of missing the point. And I've said many, many times, there's nothing worse in life than going through all of life and missing the point. Wow. I don't know how many gravesides I sat over and, and go, my goodness, they missed the point. Faith is so important. And yet that is the very thing that God answers in that passage. You know, have faith. It may be 70 years, but guess what? Bless the people that you're there. Bless the nation that you're in. You might be in exile. And you know what? As churches in Canada, we are more and more and more feeling like the exiles. In fact, they're calling this the, the exilic community. That's, that's kind of terminology that's happened in, in, in church world, you know, in, in, in the, you know, the pastors and, and the areas. We're calling it the exilic community because that's why. We're exiled from our own culture because we don't have a voice anymore. We might as well be in prison because, you know, that's the way that we're being treated. 
our ways are crazy, our, you know, our ways are you know, not politically correct, all of that kind of stuff. We are getting more and more and more as an exilic community where, where our control is, is gone, our comfort's gone, our identity is being threatened, faith is being threatened. All of those things that the exilic community was experiencing, we're experiencing as churches. Okay? And that's, the rea- that's why these books are starting to become very important because they're starting to reflect what is happening in our Canadian culture. You know, there's so many moralistic things and, and ethical things that are happening that would never have been accepted 20, 25, 30, 40 years ago. The things I grew up with that many of you know that are just common today, right? How much are we far further are we going to go, right? That's not to say they're all... It's, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. Anyway. I'm just, I'm just saying we're just changing really fast, right? And listen, with a passage like this, what does it do? It forces you to look forward. It forces you to realize the present, that God is as much in this as he is in anything else in our lives. And it forces us to look to the future. It forces us to trust God and forces us to say, guess what? And it's a beautiful passage in Daniel. Well, Daniel goes, oh, we're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And he's looking at the calendar and he's saying, guess what? It's almost over. And that's what he says in Daniel. He says, the captivity's almost over. Praise the Lord. And we're going back home soon. It is. Okay? It forces us to look forward. And here's, here's the last thing, okay? Do you know that God does his best work when the odds are stacked against us? Do you know that God does his best work when the odds are stacked against us? When it looks like we've come to the end of the road, when it looks like you can't go on any further, when it looks like how can this possibly happen, when the bottom feels like it's fallen out, when everything seems to be going against you, when the very thing you hope for and plan for doesn't even seem to materialize, and in fact is so far removed from what you want, you can't believe it's even happening. But you know what? Do you know what? When it comes to God, there is always a dawn and there's always a better day. And we can never allow the present to determine what God is going to do tomorrow. We can never, ever allow the present to ever determine what God is going to do tomorrow. But how often do we fail at trusting God for just tomorrow? Listen, some of you are in exile in in some way, you know, relationally, financially, spiritually, whatever. Is it fair to say that God knows the plans he has for you? Can you imagine trusting him in a way that you haven't trusted him yet? What difference would it make in your life? And how much anxiety and pressure would it release from you knowing that God's got this? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Just say that to yourself every morning when you get up. Before you put on your spiritual armor, okay? 
Lord, I know the plans you have for me. Can I be a blessing to someone today in some way? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful summer day, for the opportunity that we have to forego the beach and to be here. Lord, bless us as we wrestle through a passage that for many of us is a reminder of your great care regardless of the circumstances and the situation that we find ourselves in. And Lord, how often are we looking at other areas, greener grass, to the past and living there as opposed to living in the present and seeing the blessing that we can be right here, right now. So Lord, as we commit this time to you, we pray that uh, we will have been touched by the message of Jeremiah to a nation in exile, reminding them of some basic truths that we all need to remind ourselves of this day. In Jesus' name. Amen.